Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi Woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and we are so excited to kick off Season 3. And joining us today is Dr. Michael Lee Srinivas. Dr. Srinivas is an Associate Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. Michael's work centers on the history of modern South Asia with a focus on women's and gender history, the history of sexuality and the family, colonialism and nationalism, and the cultural and political economy of reproduction. Her first book, Wives, Widows, and Concubines, The Conjugal Family Ideal in Colonial India, 2008, aimed to place the family at the center of early 20th century history. The book was awarded the Joseph Elder Prize in the Indian Social Sciences from the American Institute of Indian Studies. Her recent book, just released this month, June of 2021, is entitled Reproductive Politics and the Making of Modern India, whereby she asks how biological reproduction as a process of reproducing human life became central to reproducing India as a modern nation state. Her teaching has been recognized by the Ratner Distinguished Teaching Award and the Paul W. Brown Excellence in Teaching Award. Dr. Srinivas received her BA from Yale University and PhD in Modern South Asian History and Graduate Certificate in Women's Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. Michael Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. Well, we are so excited to have you here as we launch season three of a Desi Woman podcast. And as this podcast series has evolved and I kicked it off in late summer of 2020, there is no doubt that one of the most well-received topics by our global audience pertains to topics about the history of India and especially pre-independence, along with the effects that British colonialism had in all of India, but especially the status of girls, women, and families. And so my first question for you is, how did you find yourself immersed in this type of scholarship overall? And what drew you personally to pursue this aspect of study? I would presume, I I don't like to make presumptions, but I would presume you're of Indian origin. So is there a connection to that specifically that you would like to elaborate upon? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I mean, I think there's probably two directions I'm coming from. You're right, I am of Indian origin. And so I think, um, though I did grow up in the United States, I think I always had a certain kind of curiosity more broadly about my own background. And I was a history major in college. And so that very quickly turned into curiosity about Indian history and eventually South Asian history more broadly. And so I think that's why I started becoming interested in, in learning about 
women's and gender history in the subcontinent, which is, you know, my major area of research. But I think what got me really interested in sort of thinking about the family, the history of the family and histories of sexuality, as well as gender, was I'm interested in things, broadly speaking, that seem like they're not changing or they're not very changeable or are natural in some way. And I think that's true for a lot of historians is like we like to sort of go in and sort of look at things like, quote unquote, the family, right, which feels like this sort of core social institution that is immensely important in all societies, right? But And that also seems sort of unnatural and and unchanging. And to sort of dig around, and I started to think about how actually that wasn't true, that in fact, there were tremendous changes going on in how people understood families, how the institution itself was changing throughout the 20th century in India, but especially in the late colonial period, and how people maybe even experienced family life. And so it was only later if I want to sort of cycle back to my background, it was only sort of later after I published my first book, which was about that, that members of my own family, some of them at least, read the book and started sort of linking it up to histories and stories that they had known or that they had heard about, you know, from their own ancestors and were sort of making these connections, which is pretty cool. But I'm sort of sorry to say, actually, in retrospect, that I didn't really look at those look at my own family as a source of inspiration, right? I was always sort of looking outside and then I sort of came around full circle and and learned a lot of family stories as well. I am so glad you brought that up. And I have some questions later on that sort of pertain exactly to that is how deeply connected we are to this, especially amongst our diaspora. But if our parents immigrated here from India, it's it's becoming absolutely abundantly clear to me. And it explains a lot about the definition of family, which we'll go into in a bit. And, you know, I have some very specific questions for you about your award-winning book was written quite some time ago, and I am going to have you back again to talk about your more recently released book. But I wonder if you could illuminate for us sort of the main thesis of your previously written award-winning book, Wives, Widows, and Concubines, just in general terms for us. Yeah, sure. So that book sort of starts off with a sort of a broad question and a broad argument about how a certain ideal about the family, which I'm calling the conjugal family ideal, which is in the title, becomes an important way that people thought about and experienced and organized family life in the 1920s and 30s and into the 1940s in colonial South India, and especially in Madras. And what I mean by the conjugal family ideal is this idea that the focus of family life should be on the quality of the relationship between husbands and wives. And in a way, maybe in sort of 21st century, our 21st century world, that might seem obvious to some people or sort of natural. But in fact, that was a pretty new way of thinking about sort of the core relationships within family life, because in fact, Families are also, or not just about relationships of husbands and wives, right? They're also about these much wider kin groups. Sometimes these are called joint families in an Indian context, but sort of extended kin of multiple generations, sometimes living in the same household. 
and sometimes living in multiple households. And so you have this kind of extended idea of the family. It doesn't, that doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it's people still live in those ways and connect to family members in those ways. But what I was interested in, and I kept sort of finding reference in all kinds of different records and documents, whether that was legal stuff or, or things that were published in women's magazines or popular culture, talking about worrying about trying to reorganize, you know, what ought to be the appropriate relationship between husbands and wives. And so the book, so Wives, Widows and Concubines, winds up sort of talking about where those ideas come from and how they become sort of widespread, especially in Tamil society in the 1920s and 30s. Wonderful. Well, as a researcher and scholar of this topic and time period, I did want to ask you about your ability to delve into this topic. And for example, I had interviewed Harvard professor Durbat Mitra about her scholarship, and she alluded to the immense privilege that she enjoyed as an American. And she pretty eloquently described, and I wonder if you'd concur, colonialism in India is very synonymous, and she asserts deliberately so, with the concept of dismemberment. So archives and historical texts or relics have not only left India, their place of origin, but also they've pretty much been scattered in all four directions of the world, east, west, north, south. And more importantly, many India-based scholars who might wish to pursue this type of research don't necessarily have the access to archives in the UK, Pakistan, Calcutta, or or wherever else these treasure troves of information are kept. And I just want to get your thoughts and if you'd agree with this, because I think your book and all of your work is so critically important to our history as a people and a diaspora, and especially along the lines of feminism. And it's ma- amazing to think that there's so much more to be done. But mm-hmm. just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think, yeah, absolutely, I would agree. I mean, I think that, I guess there's sort of two parts to that. One is that, yeah, absolutely, the archives in India, or the the archives relating to material in India or Indian history are really widely scattered and not easy to get access to, in part because so many of the records from the colonial period remain or at least are most easily accessible in the UK, right, in London. And so, and then, of course, archives were divided between India and Pakistan at the time of partition, and it's somewhat arbitrary about which sort of papers and files end up where. So that's sort of another factor. And I think in addition to all of that, simply the sort of time and resources that are required to be able to travel even within India and visit multiple different archives and spend the time there Um, and take the time, especially when many of these archives themselves are under-resourced, right? So they don't, they have most in many cases, they haven't been sort of digitized. They're not, the material's not available on the internet. You have to go in person. They're not always the resources to organize the material very clearly or make it very easily accessible to researchers. So all of that means that you just have to spend a ton of time, you know, in the archives and not everyone has has that available to them. And then I think a sort of a further concern has to do with the management of archives themselves. I mean, this is a deeply political issue in all countries, but especially in India, 
around who has access to which archival papers, how easy or difficult it is to get clearances and permissions to do that. So scholars from abroad have sometimes very different, though not necessarily better, you know, means of working through all of those bureaucracies to get access to the material. So I think my own archival work for this, for the Wives, Widows, and Concubines book, I sort of went in kind of pretty naively. I was still a graduate student when I started doing the research for that book. And I kind of went in and I started at the Thamarnard State Archives in Madras. And I said, I'd like to see what you have about the history of the family, right? It wasn't a greatly formulated research question. They kind of didn't know what I was talking about. But also the archives were not organized in a way that made that as a topic sort of transparent or clear. So it really took months of kind of just, you know, just sort of going in on a daily basis and digging around and seeing what people were able and willing to show me and sort of showing that I was a serious researcher and that I did really care about these materials and that that sort of got me some of the access that I did into some of that work. So, yeah, I wonder, too, about how we might sort of democratize access to the archives, right? And I hope that some of that happens when archives abroad, meaning outside of India, become digitized and become accessible to historians within India. You know, I think that's an important step. But more broadly, I just think about, you know, clear and transparent access to these materials, I think is another key part of it. It is so critically important. And so as I've interviewed people like yourself, I've come to understand that uh, this is probably one of the most important issues that I think that India could focus upon, but more importantly, our diaspora, because the work you're doing, you're one of the only people in the world that is doing it. And you're bringing to light a lot of important information that, you know, look, we're sort of confined by the model minority. And so if we had more people pursuing this area of research and study, and we don't have enough. So I just really want to commend you and just underscore the importance of this work. And the book has a very, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the book has a very distinct focus upon South India, the family, both conceptually and literally in 20th century India. And having listen to other interviews you've done, I understand you sought information from politicians of the time, writers, and other spheres of societal influence in order to glean some information about what families looked like and how they were changing. And in fact, it is interesting that there was even legislation and law being contemplated around the idea of family, inheritance, spousal relationships, and even children. So I'm wondering if you could tell us more about that and and also the role that British colonials had in this matter. Um, you do make note that the early 20th century in India and southern India was characterized as a period of tremendous social and economic change and a period of anti-colonial nationalism. So I wonder if you could tell us more about this. Yeah, Absolutely. Thinking where to where to start because there's there's really so much to say. I mean, I guess I'll start by a sort of a quick follow up to the to what I was saying before about archives. And you know, when I showed up in the Thamarnad State Archives as a grad student, and I said, "What do you have about family?" and people, you know, the archivists weren't sure what I even meant. That sort of led to my thinking about where do you go to find histories of the family as an idea and an institution. Because going back to what I was saying 
earlier, right? Like if people just sort of tend to assume that families are kind of natural and unchanging, they seem to be sort of outside of history or ahistorical, right? They just sort of exist. And so if you go to into a historical archive, the idea is, well, you're going to find out about the history of politics or the history of the economy or the history of the nation state, which are all things that we do think of as part of history with a capital H, right? Things that are sort of changing. And family seems to be like the sort of quintessential thing that's outside of that, right? As this sort of separate space in the private sphere. And so what I started to do with this book and in the archives was to try to find places where debates about families or people talking or, or writing about families sort of became visible to me. And there were a couple of different places where they were, where they were visible. So one of them was in social movements. And in fact, the whole book got its start through my interest in a Tamil radical social movement called the self-respect movement. It was an anti-caste movement that was really interested and invested in reforming marriage through throwing out sort of all the upper caste kind of Hindu ceremonies around marriage and and weddings and offering something totally new and different. So I started with the self-respect movement and why marriage and weddings were such a key part of their political activity. And then from there, I moved on to thinking about law because that's another place where kind of families encounter the state. And when they kind of meet up with each other, that's another moment when they become visible in the archives. So usually those were debates about families and property basically family disputes about who owns stuff, right? And so that was another place where we could find sort of changing views about the family. And then I think another one was in, as you mentioned, in kind of anti-colonial nationalist movements with the idea that the family would become kind of a central place to reimagine the Indian nation in preparation for independence. And so it was like sort of like literally seen as a kind of a building block of this new anti-colonial national space. And then finally, I think the other space where I really looked at families and family life were through writing in women's magazines, which I became interested in because I wrote a lot of the book and it, it wasn't, I wasn't saying anything about things like love and desire And because those weren't showing up in the other archival materials. And so I started to look for that. And I found a lot of that in women's writing, mostly in Tamil, but a little bit in English, too, in which they were trying to kind of recast this kind of conjugal family ideal that I'm talking about. This relationship between husbands and wives was recast through law, through property, through social movements, but also, I think, through women's writing. I sort of saw certain emotions, including love and desire, is kind of a revolutionary force to kind of transform family life. So those were some of the places I was was looking. One of the concepts that has really resonated with me as I've done podcasts about the history of India during this time and the period of anti-colonial nationalist movement and leading up to independence is the all-consuming and even gut-wrenching personal and political upheaval, which basically our ancestors and and those from our diaspora faced. And so, for example, when you research the anxiety and change around family, it's so shocking to just digest the trauma and transformation that was happening. And obviously they're experiencing it in real time, but we can look at it now from historic perspective. And then to make that direct connection and see some of the patterns that have survived 
and I think in large part, there's this generational trauma and the impact of it, I think, can be felt today. I've talked to um, several psychologists from our diaspora that focus upon South Asia and Dr. Usha Tamalanar is one of them, but just catastrophization and sort of the way that we manage some of the interfamilial trauma. This goes back to these roots, to exactly what you're talking about, the changes in structure. And as you state, who's included, who wasn't included, were intrinsic at the time to what it meant to be whatever this ideal was of a modern Indian person. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell me more about this. And and were they just grasping to kind of put a definition around this? And, and if so, maybe some of the causative reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that families become and are still, right, a really fundamental way in which people uphold existing social values. And consequently, they can also be really powerful ways in which people can make change. And so I think that's why the history of the family is so interesting to me, because in the work that I was I was doing for that book, it became really clear that all of the, much of the sort of social turmoil that you're referencing through this period of, of sort of late colonialism has its own sort of march through family life, right? So the, the starting point of this project, at least in my head, had been around sort of the self-respect movement that I mentioned, which was an anti-caste movement. It wasn't a self-identified Dalit movement, but it was sort of focused around non-Brahmin Hindus. And their sort of core idea was that there was no way to kind of challenge caste hierarchy and caste inequality that didn't go through the family. And in fact, I don't write a lot about Ambedkar in that in the book because my, my focus is on sort of the Tamil region. But Ambedkar made a similar point around sort of the destruction in the annihilation of caste in, in his book. And in Umberticor's own anti-caste work, which really centered on or claimed that there's no way to kind of attack caste hierarchy if you're not willing to transform caste endogamy. In other words, these sort of rules about, you know, who can marry who and how caste is upheld through those. And so that's just one example, right, of like any kind of radical social change or challenge to social and economic inequalities have some way in which they move through the family, And so similarly, another area that I was really interested in looking at was, you know, how do women gain access to family property? This goes through the family as well, right? Which is that for women, even though, of course, in in contemporary India, legally, women do have access to nearly equal property rights. When does this become possible and when does it become impossible for women to access? And of course, that kind of goes through family relations as well. There's other scholars who have talked a lot about how it's difficult for women to avail themselves of the legal rights that they have simply because there's so much opposition to that within their own families, right? To their claiming the property or the rights or the wealth that they have. So I think the family sort of really becomes this kind of fulcrum, right? Where any attempt to sort of make change or any attempt to kind of uphold the status quo wind up becoming sort of debates and challenges and questions that center on family life. 
Well, that kind of leads me into my next question, because it's very intriguing that legislative acts were a part of this discussion at the time. And and you pointed out in other interviews, and you sort of just alluded to it regarding property rights, but it can boggle the mind that we're correlating, you know, emotional bonds within families, but we're really talking about laws enacted around some of this. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, the British government was actually quite reluctant to pass legislation about families, but Mm -hmm. they did do so around the topic of marriage and the age of marriage and as well around property. And I wanted to know if you could tell us more about this. And also, is it correct that there were more matrilineal tendencies in the inheritance rights around property in South India versus perhaps other regions in India? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can definitely talk about all that. So there were a couple of major important legislative changes in the colonial period, and especially in the 20s and 30s that I'm talking about. Probably the most important one was the Child Marriage Restraint Act of 1929. And that was the one that that first instituted a minimum age of marriage for girls at 14. And that was the first time there was even a minimum age of marriage. And in general, I mean, a number of scholars have written about it. And in fact, I'll just do a shout out to the book I'm reading right now, which is by Ishita Bande. It's a brand new book where it centers around this, this particular law, the Child Marriage Restraint Act. And I think the British government in general was very reluctant to pass any of these legal changes, in part because they were concerned that it would lead to a lot of social unrest that they were not necessarily willing to take on as a foreign or colonial power, right? They just sort of didn't see it. British administrators tended not to see it in their interest to intervene in what they considered, quote unquote, native customs. And so they were very reluctant to pass any kind of legislation. But the Child Marriage Restraint Act came about because there was a lot of pressure from a lot of people within India. Nationalists, a rising women's movement led by the Women's Indian Association and the All India Women's Conference, um, as well as international pressures from the League of Nations. This was a time period between World War I and World War II. And another important scholar who's Murnalini Sinha sort of outlines this in her book about child marriage. There was a growing sort of consensus globally led by the League of Nations that, in fact, you know, Indian laws needed to be changed and quote unquote modernized or sort of brought in line with sort of global norms that were instituted by the League. So the British colonial government was facing pressures from all different sides, internationally and from within India, and ultimately passed this law, which was hugely important in terms of sparking a lot of debate and discussion about marriage and its significance for the Indian nation and Indian society. It was probably not hugely important in terms of actually raising the age at which girls got married because the law was pretty widely ignored when it was first passed. Another sort of key set of legislations was around property. There was one major piece of of legislation in 1937. And then soon after independence, the Indian government restructured sort of Hindu law, which governed sort of civil relationships like marriage and inheritance among Hindu populations. And both of those moved towards giving women, including widows, greater rights over property. But again, like I was saying, I think sort of the core tragedies of these is that it's while law is important, it's never enough to sort of make major social changes, right? So that in, in, in both of these cases, the age of marriage and in property, sort of simply passing legislation didn't necessarily result in women's greater access to property or greater age of marriage. 
On the matrilineal question, yes, there were sort of communities that were somewhat more matrilineal, both in the South, but especially in Kerala. So less so in Tamil Nadu, which is the focus of my book, but also in parts of Northeast India is sort of another key area of sort of these more matrilineal societies. Those two, though, didn't necessarily give women a lot of control over property. Rather, what they tended to do was pass property along through a matrilineal line, but often, or in some cases, that was still controlled by men. So matrilineal societies are also patriarchal or can be patriarchal in certain ways, if that makes any sense. But certainly the Kerala case offered an alternative, right? An alternative that wasn't taken. An alternative of matrilineal property succession that eventually the colonial government sort of reined in and and brought into a more patrilineal and patriarchal framework. And so we are sort of approaching the latter part of this particular session with you. But what I do want to discuss, and and I want to have you back again to discuss it in more detail, is your more recent project, which really takes a close look at reproduction and the politics around reproduction. And so could you tell us the title of this book and just a bit more about it? And as I said before, I'm going to have you back and have a very detailed set of questions for you around it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I would absolutely love to be back because this is super fun. I mean, it's such a great chance to talk about my work, which of course everyone wants to do. (laughs) So yeah, the book is called Reproductive Politics and the Making of Modern India. And it's just out in this month with the University of Washington Press. Congratulations. Yeah, June 2021. Yeah, so a little bit about that book. I mean, it certainly continues a lot of the themes and questions that I was interested in in the Wives, Widows, and Concubines book, too, mainly about, you know, how does something that we tend to think of as unchanging and ahistorical, that's reproduction, biological reproduction, that is, sort of become part of the realm of politics? How does it lead to, how do debates about who should have children and how many children should they have and what kind of planned family is a good family, right? How do all those things get interwoven with massive changes in society, politics, and economics across the whole of the 20th century? So that book looks a lot more at, it looks at the colonial period, but it looks a lot more at the early post-colonial period too. So the 1950s, 1960s, and into the 1970s. Well, there's no question that the topic of family planning comes up a lot, and especially in developing countries. I know it's made international news that China has now modified their mm-hmm. two-child law to three children and sort of received some um, humorous responses from uh, the Chinese <laughs> population because they can't even afford one. And so It's fascinating to me, and I think some of the legislation around family planning, it's kind of an example, and I want to talk to you more, like I said, about this book, but why children were needed in certain socioeconomic classes. And we also know about maternal fetal medicine and infant mortality rates. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know that that was necessarily being considered when you look at, at families perhaps that have an abundance of children. And it's very socioeconomic as well, because, but you also bring up the fact that the one child policy really presents a problem for cultures like ours, where who is going to take care of the parents in their mm-hmm. elderly years? And mm-hmm. there's a whole support system. I visited China, and when I 
spoke with many of the um, Native people, they did bring up the fact that it's a real concern. And so there's generations of elderly people that, you know, are, are sort of in a precarious situation in, the, in their latter years of life. And the families are very small. So the support systems are diminished. And, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if you want to speak to that in general terms. And, and like I said, I, I will um, have a bevy of questions around this book <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I can just say briefly, in the Chinese example, um, and this change in policy is a, is a really great a sort of entry point into that in a way, because I think, you know, the response to the Chinese government, like you said, from ordinary people who were like on social media was, you know, this policy change is not going to change what we do, right? Like we can't even afford to have one kind of stuff. And I think in broad terms, like this sort of story that's in my book too, or sort of one of the through lines that, that move through the book is that, you know, governments and international agencies and foreign aid and all kinds of forces are, you know, become really invested, right, in the fertility of the so-called third world woman and sort of the Indian woman, especially as sort of like this key to kind of unlocking global development or something like that. And that's still true today. But at the same time, people have the number of, of children that they would like to have. And that's not necessarily going to be influenced by government policy, right? And so I'm interested in some of the tensions and the contradictions and the the sort of push and pull factors there and how people are making some of those decisions and, and what the results of them are. Absolutely. And one of the other nuances of India is who is having the children. If a certain caste or religious group or sort of socioeconomically privileged group is having children, is there going to be as much scrutiny versus caste distinctions mm-hmm. and other groups where, you know, maybe your book will dive into some of that, that these reproductive rights and the focus and scrutiny was perhaps placed upon those that had less, the haves and the have-nots. Yes, I mean, you're sort of hitting the nail right on the head, right? It's because that certain people's reproduction becomes sort of seen as a social and economic problem. And those tend to be minoritized and marginalized populations. That's true in India. That's true in the U.S. as well. That's true in many societies. And so how that kind of plays out is definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about. So yeah, I'd be happy to, to talk more about that because the book definitely delves into that. Well, Maithili, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Dr. Maithili Srinivas. And I will have links to all that we've discussed today in the podcast notes. And as I stated before to our audience, please listen closely. I will be having her back again for a follow-up conversation about her latest book. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sonia. This was really a pleasure. And I really, you know, just thanks for inviting me. Thank you.